Hello and welcome to the Cliff of Chance Careers podcast. Our Arcus Conversation series is led by our Arcus Network to explore topics and commemorate events that are relevant to the LGBTQ plus lived experience and to discuss how this informs who we are and how we work. My name is Oliver James and I'm a trainee in the financial regulation team at Clifford Chance. I have the pleasure of being joined here today by Ken Terrazzo, an associate in the litigation team. We're both members of Arcus, Latin for Rainbow, which is the firm's network for advancing LGBTQ plus equality. How are you doing today, Ken? I'm well, thanks, Ollie. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Plodding along. As, as we all are, nearly Christmas time. Um, in our first Arcus Conversation podcast, today we're going to focus on World AIDS Day, which happens every year on 1 December, which is coincidentally my birthday. So for me, it's a day that's uh, very uh, impossible to forget. Now, while we're all currently battling through the middle of a new pandemic, we thought it'd be a good time to discuss some of the history, challenges, and positive advances that have been made in combating another pandemic that some have described as the world's largest pandemic in history. So, World AIDS Day was founded in 1988, and it's a day that shows support to the 38 million people living with HIV currently, and also to commemorate the 35 million people we've sadly lost since it was first identified in 1984. Looking forward, it also aims to raise awareness about the disease and to break down stigma about it, which is what we're hoping to chat about today. Firstly, it's important to distinguish between HIV and AIDS, I think. So HIV is a virus that can cause an infection, and then AIDS, which is short for Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, is a condition of that. So contracting HIV can lead to the development of AIDS, which is a result of HIV's damage to our immune systems, and makes people of all ages less able to ward off any illnesses, which results in complications which can lead to, and have led to, 35 million people dying. And, and like you say, well, it, 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 this has been a, a devastating uh, disease. Uh, over 35 million people have died and are currently living with the virus. On, on top of that, I think something in the order of 1.7 million people became newly infected in 2019, and nearly 700,000 died from AIDS-related illnesses. Uh, of these uh, uh, infections and deaths, Eastern and Southern Africa uh, remains the region with the largest number of infections, with about 20 million, and deaths with about 300,000 a year. Now, within Western countries, the disease has been mostly associated with the LGBTI plus community, and in particular gay men. I mean, if you look at the stats in the UK, uh, it's, it's quite interesting. It's estimated that about 105,000 people are living with HIV, and of these, about 70% were male. But going against the perception that it is a purely gay disease, heterosexual sexual intercourse and sex between men both account for 46% of new infections. So it's about, it's about even. But that said, if you are a male who has sex with men, you are still 26 times more likely to contract the virus. Very interesting. So, you know, apart from physical challenges stemming from living with the disease, those that live with the disease are also often within society, stigmatized and excluded even today. It sort of marks, you know, a sort of hangover from the 80s advert campaigns and attitudes towards those that initially contracted the virus in its inception or in its discovery. And it's particularly devastating for people who are already marginalized in society, such as members of the LGBTQ plus community, those of racial and ethnic minorities, and also the poorest and most disadvantaged in our societies. 
Well, I mean, Oli, I know that so we're both tragic fans of The Crown, and I remember in one of the scenes, uh, there was, of course, that, that scene of Diana hugging a child with HIV, and that was one of the first, I suppose, stigmas that was broken down uh, back in the 1980s and 90s. People were afraid even to go near or touch someone uh, with HIV because they feared that they could catch catch it um, in the same way that people catch the cold or COVID through droplets in the air. And obviously, things have moved on from that kind of stigma. But um, do you want to share with us, Dolly, what some of the stigmas that people in the LGBTIQ plus community who live with HIV face today? Yeah, definitely. I mean, to sort of cover them all would be an impossible task, but I think <laughs> in in the time that we've got, but I think, you know, there's so many evidence, there's so much evidence, sorry, of how sort of stigma pervades the general society as regards HIV and AIDS. So one example of that would be sort of how as a society we sort of expect within the community that we come out anyway and then people are sort of half expected to come out twice in a way. Some people have described it like that such as Gareth Thomas actually who sort of described coming out as gay as one challenge and then coming out as HIV positive as another. Um, and actually touching on Gareth Thomas's story I think it's worth sort of noting and sort of brings into sort of stark reality. And in, in, I think, June of this year, um, Gareth wrote a very interesting piece with The Guardian, um, basically saying how there were a bunch of journalists that had found out information about his HIV status and were essentially pay, like offering him and blackmailing him sort of different, different ways for him to sort of come out from that. And that's before necessarily he told everyone in his family. Um, and it sort of shows how there's a financial incentive for these newspapers and a lot of media sort of outlets to really profit on someone's diagnosis, which I think when, if we sort of take a step back from that and looked at this beyond the scope of HIV and AIDS would not be sort of de deemed acceptable in any way when it comes to other illnesses that we see in society. Um, and I think though there was a bit of a stir following that, I don't, I don't think there has been enough because when you really think about that that's sort of the most one if not one of the most um intrusive aspects that anyone could really go to is your health and then to sort of try and blackmail you to come out twice as sort of hiv positive before you're ready to do that i think sort of speaks volumes for what people want to read because ultimately that's what journalism follows um and then i think sort of in the same vein i think it's worth sort of talking about indirect stigma um, and sort of subliminal stigma, which maybe people don't even realize is a sort of stigmatic view. So, I mean, there's a bunch of people in the community that still refer, and by the community in this sense, I mean both within the LGBTQ plus community as well as wider society, in referring to people who don't have HIV as clean. Um, so the inference, obviously, from suggesting that is that those that have HIV uh, are dirty. Uh, which is, I mean, a, a very interesting adjective to use, and it's it, it's very sad um, in this day and age, given what we now know, that people sort of suggest, or even if we said that before, given that they are still human beings living with a virus, um, and it's obviously unsurprisingly very damaging to people that are living with the virus, mental well-being, as well as the virus that they're also fighting off. So, I mean, this might also mean that people who think we're afraid of having the virus don't get tested, and then do not get treated properly, which obviously doesn't end well in the sense of reducing transmission rates and also ultimately beating this virus. So you can imagine the impact 
that this all has, and this is only a small snapshot on sort of stigma within the LGBTQ, on the LGBTQ community who are still coming to terms with their sexuality or struggling with it, let alone if they actually end up contracting HIV and then sort of having to deal with all of this again, just in sort of a different, different from a different angle. Um, and I think that's, that's, some, that's really incumbent on us within the community itself, as well as society at large, to really challenge that. Um, and I hope that's something that people take away from this podcast today. Absolutely. And, and I mean, the, the gas trauma story is, I think, just that real example of just sort of how even for people who have been subjected to lots of media scrutiny in the past uh, and lots of, you know, coverage about their life, for even people like them to feel how, sort of, you know, so, um, I suppose, devastated and upset that uh, their, their story could be, uh, you know, told in such an uh, unprivate and in, um, intrusive way. You can only imagine how ordinary people who have never been exposed to that kind of media coverage um, would feel. Um, I think one of the other challenges you mentioned there um, as well, Oli, is particularly applicable to uh, ethnic minorities and disadvantaged background, uh, people uh, uh, from disadvantaged backgrounds. And that sort of goes to having that strong support network. So firstly, people who come from these backgrounds are firstly more, more likely not to have a strong support network, both in terms of friends and family and access to information due to things like the language barrier. And I think one of the things we'll, we'll to touch on later is just how far we have come uh, in, in the fight against HIV AIDS. And a key part of that is the awareness of you know, testing and information. But what that means is that people who don't have you know, this strong support network means that when they already feel isolated and, like I said, see the negative reaction stigma that people with HIV uh, have and might face means that they might be afraid to get tested or if they have the virus uh, to tell people um, uh, such as sexual partners that they, that they have it and so that they can manage it um, appropriately. Um, so one, I think that's, that, that is also a challenge that's linked to uh, that is the access is access to medication. Um, so, like I said, we've, we've come a really long way in medical advances, uh, such as that uh, if you do have HIV, taking one pill a day is enough to manage the virus and prevent the virus from growing in the body. It's certainly not the death sentence that people uh, thought it was in the 80s and 90s. And even you know, from the last sort of five, ten years, the amount of medication and the different types of medication you've got to take to manage. Uh, the virus has, you know, improved dramatically. And then there's also uh, PrEP, which, uh, if taken properly, so either as daily or event-based, can actually protect someone from contracting HIV, even when they're not using other forms of protection, such as condoms. So you're actually really getting to a point where both transmission and managing the, the disease is very much um, uh, easy to do or easier to do. Um, so both of these, I think, Ollie, are on the NHS. Um, and so it's affordable for people, uh, for UK residents. But interestingly, that's not necessarily the case in the rest of the world. I mean, so obviously uh, the US um, is uh, an interesting example of a developing country where costs can run into thousands of months. But also um, in other countries, so from Australia where I'm from, access to PrEP, which is the drug that prevents it, is only available on the NHS equivalent if you're a resident or a citizen. Um, and many temporary residents are excluded from it. So there's still lots of work there to be done to make sure that people of all backgrounds have access to uh, the right information and the right medication. Um, 
that said, so I, I think the picture is not all dark, and that's that's the good news. And to so finish the podcast, I want to discuss the advantages, uh, the advances, sorry, that have been made in treating and preventing HIV/AIDS, and about the possibility that it might be actually a po- uh, that we might actually be able to eradicate HIV transmission in the next decade here in the UK. Yeah, I mean it's a very exciting and very sort of um, positive thing to end on. Um, is advances in medication and treatment since you know the early 80s when we sort of really started seeing this virus for what it is? Um, and I mean, I think it's probably very pertinent and sort of on the nose a bit with vaccines sort of coming out with COVID right now. Um, exactly. Yeah. So some advances in medication and treatment. So I mean. We were, we've spoken earlier about how, Ken, you were saying earlier about how, you know, if you take a pill a day, then you can essentially live a pretty much normal life. Your life expectancy, if you get tested and you find out that you have HIV and you manage that effectively from early on, you have a life expectancy, which is pretty normal, um, which is amazing. And as you said earlier, like, it's not sort of the death sentence that it used to be or this very scary, elusive thing which is sort of advertised and plastered in a way which is again furthering as we were talking before like this sort of stigmatic attitude um also again sort of it's easier to manage the illness i mean there's it's far harder to manage illnesses which are less uh deathly which is great uh, and there's also constant constant developments um so i was reading actually the other day about how there's a potential new experimental hiv drug which is a twice a year sort of dose that you take and that's enough to make it that you can't transmit it and you can't receive it uh, which is amazing and I mean everything requires funding and years to typically go through um, so uh, fingers crossed there'll be even more sort of developments in that um, avenue and also what the NHS has done um, based on work by the Terence Higgins Trust and a bunch of other amazing charities and advocates um, with access to medication and to PrEP and PEP, which is the drug you take if you think that you've sort of been ex- in exposure uh, within to HIV within the last 72 hours, um, to prevent it. And I mean, the, the UK with the, our NHS, with the PrEP system in place and our sort of access to that, our, our statistics with HIV are exemplary. Um, and I think that it, it's really exciting that we sort of set a goal to 2030 to have transmissions rates to zero. And I hope that we sort of take and other countries sort of take the expertise and that we really can as a country um, make known uh, how it is possible. Um, it's, it's just not it's not the easiest fight to, fu- to fight uh, despite all these amazing advances in medication and treatment that I've just sort of outlined. And there's so much more. Absolutely. And I mean, just to sort of really briefly touch on that before we uh, wrap up, that uh, uh, eradication target you talked about, um, the UN did a target back in 2014 called 1990. So that's basically 90% of people living with HIV should be diagnosed. Of those 90%, they should be treated. And of those being treated, they should have viral suppression, which means that you know, you're on your treatment means that you're incapable of passing that virus on to anybody. Um, so in the UK, um, those figures were 94, 98, and 97%. And so last year, uh, the UK government committed to eradicating HIV by 2030. So that's only 10 years away. Um, and, and I think, uh, like, like we said, if we can get there, it would be the first country to eradicate it, uh, which would be pretty impressive. So hopefully 
in the next 10 years, or maybe hopefully even in before, because uh, you know the UK is ahead of that 1990-90 target. We might even uh, have, have very exciting news on that front even before 2030. Yeah, it'd be it would be sort of a crown and glory. It'd be amazing sort of for that to happen. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think I think it's sort of very in a way though though I mean obviously sort of in its infancy things were spoken about differently about HIV and AIDS. I think really just seeing a government such as the UK government last year just being like, we're going to end this by 2030 is such a shift in attitude, um, which again is sort of a huge positive and something which we as a community or those affected by this virus sort of having people and governments now finally fighting in our corner. Um, and that that's amazing, but that by no means means that, you know, we need to stop doing what we're doing. I think if anything, it's sort of the momentum needs to be picked up because now we know what's possible. Um, so, I mean, we need to continue advocating, educating and fighting sort of to ensure that transmission, transmission rates, which are possible now to end up at zero, do end up there. Um, and also that within our sort of, within the affected communities that we sort of work intersectionally um, with all minorities to sort of ensure that people aren't affected by this for much longer or sort of long term anymore, um, given that it is something that we can fix. Um, and I think, you know, with developments in medicine and how drugs will increasingly get cheaper and cheaper, um, hopefully we can make that change also for those worsely affected, for example, on the continent of Africa. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot to be done, but there's also a lot that's been done. Uh, and I hope that people have taken away a lot from this podcast. So thank you for listening to this sort of very high level overview of one element, really, of what World AIDS Day means to both Ken and I. Great. Thanks, Ali. Cool. Yes. So you've been listening to the Clifford Chance Careers podcast. If you enjoyed this, you may be interested in listening to some of our past episodes. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on future episodes, which are coming soon. To find out more about Clifford Chance and the Arcus Network, please visit our website. Cheers, Ken. Thanks. Thanks, Ollie.